An 8.2 earthquake nearly flattened Armenia in 1989. Over 300,000 people were killed in less than four minutes. Amid this destruction and chaos, a father left his wife safe at home and rushed to the school where his son was supposed to be. The school building was as flat as a pancake. He was so shocked all he could do was stare at the pile of debris that had been a school building minutes earlier. Finding any survivors seemed hopeless. However, the father remembered a promise he made to his son, no matter what, I'll always be there for you. As tears ran down his cheeks. Slowly, he began to concentrate on where he had walked his son to class each morning. His son's classroom would be in the rear right corner of the building. He rushed over there and started digging through the rubble. As he was digging other forlorn parents came to the school, crying and wailing, my son. My daughter. Some well-meaning parents tried pulling the man away from the rubble declaring, it's too late. They're dead. Go, home. Face reality, there's nothing you can do. You're just going to make things worse. To each parent, he asked, are you going to help me? Then he went back to dig for his son, stone by stone. Eventually, the fire chief showed up and tried pulling him off the debris saying, fires are breaking out, explosions are happening everywhere. You're in danger. We'll take care of it. Go, home. But the father asked, are you going to help me? The police came and said, you're angry. Distraught. It's over. Go home. We'll handle it. He asked them, are you going to help me? No one helped him. He continued to dig alone remembering his promise and commitment, no matter what, I'll always be there for you. He dug for 8 hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, then at the 38th hour when he pulled back a boulder, he heard his son's voice, Armand. The father screamed his son's name. Dad? Dad. It's me. I told the other kids not to worry. I told them that if you were alive, you'd save me. And when you saved me, they'd be saved. You promise no matter what, I'll always be there for you. You did it, dad. You did it. What going on in there? How is it? The father asked. There are 14 of us left out of 33. We're scared, hungry, thirsty, and thankful you're here. When the building collapsed, it made a wedge, like a triangle, and it saved us. Come on out, son. No, dad. Let the other kids come out first because I know you'll get me. No matter what, I know you'll be there for me. I tell this story because I have for too long listened to people in congregations and presbyteries tell me their situation is hopeless. They can do nothing to change their circumstance, so why bother trying to change it? It doesn't matter if it's about not enough money, a building in disrepair, or a congregation that had a thousand members, but has now dwindled down to about a hundred folks. Each one of them has expressed their sadness about their situation as hopeless. During the COVID-19 pandemic as people were dying, becoming unemployed, the hopelessness of a government wanting to trade the economy for people's lives by allowing people to stop staying home and stop social distancing and risking being infected, I keep hearing the panic and fear overwhelming people. And, to tell you the truth I wonder, how can Christians, who celebrate Easter, who celebrate resurrection life rising out death be hopeless? How can people exclaim they have no future when every week they read and hear about how God time after time has made a way for life to flourish when it seemed impossible for life to even exist? how God has always made a way out of no way. One hears this simple truth in the Psalms of Lament such as Psalm 130 that begins out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. And ends with O Israel hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is great power to redeem. It is the Lord who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. 
every psalm of lament begins with the honest exclamation of pain and grief like those rising from the devastation of Israel's exile speaking heart, brutal words about how the Israelites were trapped in the rubble of their despair and the debris of their despondency just like the children trapped in the rubble of a building, because Israelites had been forcibly taken off their land and dragged in chains to a strange land where they would live as strangers, cut off from family and friends and from the central symbol of their faith the temple. One can almost hear the lamenting wail of the psalmist, My God, my God why have you forsaken us? as the cry of people who feel as dead as dry bones. Yet in all, but two of the Psalms of Lament there is the declaration that God acts to change the situation from death to new life. Nearly, all the Psalms of Lament bear a strong unequivocal witness to God's compassion enacting a new creation of life, gifting them with a sustaining hope that life will arise once again. This is, of course, the message God is telling the prophet Ezekiel to tell the Israelites in Babylon. It is not surprising that God would bring the prophet Ezekiel out to this parched ancient battlefield littered with dry bones, and then ask him, Ben Adamson of man can these bones live? Probably, Ezekiel could have been a bit cheeky and answered, Well, yeah sure if I had some steel plates and wires to connect them together. Or, maybe if I had some DNA from the bones, went to the lab, made some synthetic flesh, I might be able to make some semblance of life here given enough time. However, Ezekiel gives a faithful answer, Lord, you are the only one who knows the answer. That's when God commands Ezekiel to prophesy to those bleached bones, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus, says the Lord, God to these bones. Ezekiel speaks the words that God gives him to speak that stirs the bones from lifelessness to life. God's life-creating word gets those old bones to rattling around and coming back together again. The same life-creating word covers them with sinew and muscle and flesh. The same life-creating word brings the breath of life within them restoring them to life. It isn't surprising God would go to all this trouble because God intends Ezekiel to experience for himself the prophetic word God will give him to speak to the Israelite exiles coming to reality, so that when Ezekiel speaks this word, which will be a word of comfort and possibility, telling the Israelite exiles God will lift off the rubble of despair from them, God will sift through the debris of despondency to bring them to life, God will breathe new life into them, God will raise up new faithful leaders and they will live once again in their homeland the Israelites will hear the truth and certainty of hope in Ezekiel's voice and trust that no matter what, the Lord their God will always be there for them. And, they did trust because they were hopers, as Walter Brueggemann describes them. They were, he said, a people whose life story is a partisan, polemical narrative. It is concerned to build a counter-community counter to the oppression of Egypt, counter to the seduction of Canaan, counter to every cultural alternative and every imperial pretense. There is nothing in this narrative that will appeal to outsiders who belong to another consensus, or who share a different ethos and participate in another epistemology. To such persons, Israel's narratives are silly, narrow, scandalous, and obscurantist. The narrative form of the Torah intends to nurture insiders who are willing to risk a specific universe of discourse and cast their lot there. Live their lives based on that narrative. The way the Israelites interpreted the events of their life was rooted squarely in the stories of their ancestors' experiences of God's presence and compassion and steadfast love that creates life anew, that transforms life circumstances, so life flourishes. They used these stories to undergird their own lived experiences in this deep, abiding relationship with God, who is compassionate, steadfast in love and kindness and mercy and who is to be trusted to make a way for life to exist even when it appears there is no way for life to exist. Jesus demonstrates this same quality of God's life-creating power when He is bringing Lazarus out of the tomb. Jesus does with Martha what God had done with Ezekiel by declaring that even though her brother had been dead for four days he will live again because Jesus is the resurrection and the life and everyone who believes in Him trusts in God will live even though they may die and everyone who lives and trusts in Me, says Jesus, will never die. Do you believe Me?
Yes, Martha answers before declaring she knows he is the Messiah, the Son of God. God's life-creating Word, who is sent to restore life. Then, as they enter the village Mary is weeping and lamenting Lazarus' death with all the other villagers and Jesus joins them in their distress and grief by weeping before he speaks a word of life, commanding, Lazarus, come out. Of course, Lazarus does come out. Does live again. In this tiny Judean village, God's life-creating word comes, so these villagers might experience for themselves God restoring life and out of this experience trust God will restore their lives, will sustain their lives out of compassion and love for them no matter what their circumstances, even in the face of the seeming certainty of death, so they too become those people who live a partisan, polemical life story that is aimed at building a counter-community counter to oppression, counter to conventional wisdom, counter to the cult of ignorance and counter to every cultural alternative. And like Israel's narrative, there is nothing in this narrative that will appeal to outsiders who belong to another consensus, or who share a different ethos and participate in another way of knowing and comprehending the world. To such persons, the narratives of the followers of Christ will be silly, narrow, scandalous, and obscurantist. Yet, Jesus intends to nurture and sustain people who are willing to risk this specific universe of proclamation and who are willing to root their lives in that life story and proclamation just like those Christians who dared to rescue their Jewish neighbors during World War II. These were not extraordinary people, larger-than-life heroes. They were ordinary people, teachers, farmers, entrepreneurs, factory workers, rich and poor, single people and parents. They had done nothing extraordinary before or after their acts of rescue. What set them apart, according to studies, is their connection with others in relationships of commitment and care learned from parents, friends, and importantly from the faith tradition of Protestant and Roman Catholicism. These teachings led them to refuse to see Jews as guilty or beyond hope and to refuse to see themselves as helpless or hopeless, despite all the evidence that could be marshaled to the contrary. Instead, they made choices affirming the value and meaningfulness of each life in the middle of a diabolical social order that repeatedly denied it and wanted to kill those lives. In doing so, they saved lives and lived compassionately, loving and kind just as Jesus showed them was possible. This is why both Ezekiel's story and Lazarus' story are important for Christians at this time and place because we are called to root our lives not in doctrinal statements, propositional truths, economic theories, trading lives for money, worshipping demagogues, joining the cult of ignorance or systematic theologies based on Neoplatonic Aristotelian modes of discourse, but to root our lives, our life story, in the God who is compassionate, who is merciful, who is steadfast in love and kindness. The God who is life, who is with us to create life, sustain life and nurture life no matter what.